Our reading this evening is from Galatians chapter 3, reading at verse 23 through to chapter 4, verse 7. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that uh, we would enjoy it tonight. I pray that it would teach us things that we need to learn. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be encouraged and excited and warmed by the gospel. Heavenly Father, may we be uh, excited and encouraged and warmed by the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave so much so that we can be called sons of God. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Great. Okay, quick recap. Um, over my two weeks that we've been doing this, two weeks ago, Galatians 3, 10 to 12. If you remember, we cannot be saved by the law because, one, you can't do it. You'll always break it at some point. Unfortunately, the law demands 100%ism. Two, that's not how the law works because the law itself says that the righteous will live by faith, not through keeping it correctly. And three, it does not produce faith, only self-righteousness. So that's what we looked at in the first week in uh, Galatians 3, 10 to 12. Then moving on to last week, Galatians 3, 10 to 17. The law does not need to be achieved for salvation because one, the law does not undo or undermine the original covenant of grace and promise. Very important. That still stands. Which begs the question, why then the law? Because two... The law was added as a second administration of the same covenant of grace and promise to show up the sinfulness of God's people and thereby also showing their need for a saviour. And it was pointing to that saviour. 
And it was given so that three, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the promise of Abraham, could be revealed as the one to save them from their lawlessness. Got it? Great. Well, um, um, that's where we were. That's what we've been looking at. And as ever this week, we're on the same kind of pattern emerging. We are not under the guardianship of the law. But as our first point of two is tonight, we are sons of God through faith. Let's just read the first three verses again together. Chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You'll notice this week we start under very similar language that we did last week in verse 22. Verse 22, we read this, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And in verse 23, we have the same kind of theme. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He's now moving us on into a new part of his argument. He goes on to say, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, I love a good classic book. That's a slight lie. I actually enjoy a good classic TV remake of a good, a good classic book. I know a lot about the classics, but I haven't actually read many of them, which is to my shame. And the Orr family grew up watching BBC epics on video. That, that's what we grew up watching. You know, like Martin Chuzzlewit, those classics. Uh, Mansfield Park, Sense and Sensibility, Jane Eyre. The Barchester Chronicles by Anthony Trollope, my personal favorite. It, it says a lot about me. Um, but in all these kind of novels, you always have the character of the governess. And you either had a governess like Jane Eyre, lovely Jane Eyre, who adored her children and protected them until they were able to, to leave the nest. Or you had the governess like the draconian Miss Slycarp from the wolves of Willoughby Chase who crippled her wards with intense punishments. And in all of these classic novels, you also have children who are rebelling against their governesses. They hated them. And this is exactly the kind of idea that gets conjured up here from Paul's um, use of the word um, being under guardianship. The people of God are under the law like a person's child is under a governess. Now, Paul obviously doesn't have Jane Eyre in mind, or Miss Slycarp, but a more culturally Jewish idea. There would have been servants in a Jewish household who are moral instructors and disciplinarians of their children. The child, in this case, from the age of about six until they were adolescent, was under the care, supervision, and discipline of that guardian. But here's the thing. Everyone knows that a governess or a guardian is only over you for a temporary period of time. But instead of seeing it as such, instead of looking forward to the time when they would come out from being under the guardian, to some extent the Judaizers were treating the law as if that was all there was. They'd not grasped that there would be a day when they would be free from the guardianship of the law through faith in the promise, Jesus Christ himself. And because of that, it made sense then that the law was hanging around their necks like a dead weight. It was burdensome. Its yoke was not easy. Or rather, the law had become, as John Piper says, a governess's rod over them. It was oppressive to them because they always felt short of doing what the guardian required. 
They found the law only provoked frustration and sin and punished ill discipline. It didn't make them grow in faith. It didn't give life. And we see that somewhat in the Old Testament, don't we? Many of the Jews became the recalcitrant children we kind of see in our classic novels, rebelling against their governess, fighting against the discipline of the law, always finding themselves coming up short against it. To the Judaizers, those who were trying to stand up to the law and keep it to get to God, the law had become a governess's rod. However, a, a governess or a guardian is not all bad. A guardian protects and a guardian guides. As Philip Ryken says in his commentary on Galatians, the guardian that Paul has in mind used to walk the children home from school. He used to teach the child about morality, teach what was in their best interests, and yes, discipline where that was needed, until such a time as when the child was released from their care, when the child had come of age. And that's what the law was for keeping the Jews under it until such a time as they came of age. Indeed, until such a time as Christ came. Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, just briefly, when we read in verses 23 and 25 the words, until faith came, or now that faith has come, we do have to be careful. We don't want to inadvertently undo anything that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Now, remember, the people of God were always saved through faith in the promise that was to come. That's never changed. We spent five weeks hammering that home. The language of faith coming, then, is to do with Christ coming, which is quite clearly seen in verse 24. The law is our guardian until Christ came. That is, until the object of their faith came, so that they might be justified before God. That makes sense. It is not that under the law there wasn't faith, and now there is. That's not what's happening. And in fact, as much as there were Jews and these Judaizers who saw the law as a way to God, there were others who saw the law for what it really was a guardian keeping them and pointing them towards the promise, the time when faith would be revealed. Think of the writer of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist gets that the law was good, pointing them towards Christ. These guys get it. They're seeking to put their trust in the good promises of God, and the law points them to it. And so they find it not as a governess's rod, but as a pointer. They see it not as a list of things to learn so that they may get to know God like an exam, but that they see their own frailty and sin in the light of it, and therefore their need for someone to help them to be released from the law. Or rather, they need someone to help them out of guardianship. Enter Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came. This is when faith came. The promise has now been revealed. The one in whom faith was put. They are now no longer under the harsh discipline of the law. They are now no longer under the mere guidance of the law. They now see what the law was guarding them for. Christ. You see, the law didn't teach them about how to climb to God. It taught them who God was. 
what the object of their faith looked like. It pointed to Christ, and it released them from guardianship. And the Judaizers missed it. Many others in the Old Testament were longing for it. We now see it. But this is where it gets really good. Because it is not enough that we are free from guardianship of the law and are now set free. It is not enough that we are standing in front of Christ and seeing him as the promise of Abraham, dying that cursed death all the way back in verse 10, in my place, for my sake, giving me righteousness and setting me free. Incredibly, there's more. There's verse 25. We are now no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus we are all sons of God. We are now sons of the living God. We have swapped the guardianship of the law to the fatherhood of God himself. We are no longer the orphans of the state, but adopted into a new family. You see what's going on here? We're not just freed or released from something. We are freed and released into something. We are free from the rod and the pointing of the guardian. We are free from the imprisonment and weight of the law. And we are released into the loving arms of a loving father who says, I know you're a sinner. I know you're a lawbreaker. Now trust me. Like a child trusts his father, trust me. I've got this. I've sent my son, Jesus Christ, the one in whom the promise was given and the one to whom the law pointed, and he's going to die for you so that you might be declared right. There are two other images presented here by Paul in verse 27. We read this, as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Meaning all those who have shown that they have put their faith in God. Those who have been baptized have not just been washed clean by their show of baptism, but have died to their old selves. That's what baptism shows. And they've not just died to their old selves, but they are alive in their new selves. And they are able to achieve newness because they have put on Christ. That's like Andy Buchan's t-shirt, if you remember, four weeks ago. We are now clothed in Christ's righteousness. I put him on. You are now then no longer disciplined under the law. You are now made right before God. You are now no longer a ward of the state. You are now my son. And this language of sonship is very important. It's not just rhetoric. You see, the Judaizers felt they were the right children of God through circumcision and through trying to keep the law and through trying to please this guardian. And Paul says, no. Those who are sons of faith are sons of God. You are all sons of God through faith, we read here. As a consequence, says Paul, despite what you may think, Judaizers, rank, gender, earthly heritage doesn't matter at all. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male and female, because you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, just like some of these horrid children in these classic novels, the Judaizers' main problem was that they felt entitled. We are free 
We are Jewish, we are men. And we have the law given to us. We are chosen and we are taught how to achieve holiness and how to grow into our given right as sons of God. Not true, says Paul. Yes, you had the privilege of being a chosen people, being given the law, but you missed what it was about. In Christ, those who have faith in Christ, they are the children of God. Whether you are an enslaved Gentile woman or a free Jewish man, if you have believed in the promise, if you have believed in faith in Jesus Christ, if you have understood that Christ has died for you, for your lawlessness, and you trust him, then you are a son. And you have not achieved that status through works, but by faith. What does this mean for us? Well, if it's true that we are all children of God, and if it's true that there are now no barriers between us that distinguish in terms of salvation, then it must mean that we are brothers and sisters together. We are not individual sons and daughters. We are a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, with God as our Father. And that has radical implications for how we live now, in community, together, as Chalmers Church, doesn't it? Now, Paul doesn't do away with distinctions. We still have, and Paul often talks about, our roles as men and women and our distinctions of culture, our national identity. Those are great things. But they no longer divide us anymore. We are beautifully diverse, and we are fully united in Christ. And so that means you have to love and treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That means we're not to show favoritism. We're not to seek out those who think we're of higher worth because they look good, or they have an exciting job, or they're socially mobile, or because they're popular, because there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. We're all one in Christ. Do we live that out? Do we love each other beyond the distinctions the world places on us? Do we seek out the lowly, the lost, the hurting, the uncomfortable, the difficult, the discouraged, the poor amongst us in this new family that we now find ourselves in? Christ did. It's true, isn't it, that you Scots have more in common with English believers than you do with Scottish people who do not follow Christ. How does that make you feel? genuinely how does that make you feel we have more in common with the chinese people who are in christ than we do with people of our own culture never is this more vivid than having mark and camilla here with us we see this as a powerful outworking of what this new global family radically different family looks like mark and camilla are reporting back to us what our family is getting up to how they're faring, how the family business is doing. And we burden for them. We welcome them back like family because they are family. And we burden for the family at the other side of the world because they are our family in Christ. This is so important. See what's going on here is my relationship with God has fundamentally changed. In that, as I am being brought out from under slavery, from under imprisonment and from under the guardianship of the law, into sonship with God as my father, my horizontal relationship with other believers has also fundamentally changed. I am to treat you as a son of God. Someone now of immeasurable worth. I am to treat you as someone for whom the son of God himself died. 
Is that how we see each other? God doesn't see us as our distinctions. He sees us clothed in Christ. That's why verse 27 precedes verse 28. You have all put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. As an unbeliever, all I saw you as was what your distinction showed me. Now all I see is Christ. We are to see each other and treat each other as God sees and treats us righteous before the throne. And this is why our congregations and our Christian communities should look so different. Because we do not set up the distinctions that the world judges everyone else by. Those are torn down. And all we see is fallen people, all saved by grace, by the same grace of the same Lord Jesus Christ. As Don Carson says of this passage, we are a team of natural enemies that don't have anything in common except we have all been saved by the death of Jesus and made brothers and sisters in him. But it doesn't end there. Because there is a more important element to sonship, and that is we are not just sons of God, but we are also heirs of God. Read the rest of the passage with me from verse 29 of chapter 3 to 4, 7. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I don't know if this is going to help my cause, probably not. But I also love Downton Abbey. <laughs> I'm really sorry. And for those of us who watch it, we know that inheritance is a big deal. So the estate going to the eldest son when he comes of age. And you know, the reason that there is so much excitement over the birth of people like Prince George is because we find it fascinating that he is born into incredible privilege. He comes into incredible inheritance. And whether we agree with that or not, that's what happens at the moment. But Prince George is not an inheritor yet. He's an heir presumptive. He has so much stuff already that is marked as his, but he hasn't got it yet. It's being kept for him. And that's what's going on here. We don't need to explain that really any further. As an heir, Paul says, you're in some respects no different to a slave because you haven't actually got anything yet. You are embargoed from having it, in fact, but you are promised to get it in the future and that it is kept for you safe until such a time as you can inherit it properly. We were like that, Paul says. Under the law, we were kept from the inheritance of Christ. Indeed, for the Gentiles, it wasn't just the law, Paul goes on to say here, but also the elementary principles of the world that we're enslaved to, verse 3. In some senses, that acted in the same way as the law did to the Jews. The Gentiles were from pagan nations with their own pagan roots to God, and as a consequence, they were also lawbreakers and therefore not able to inherit. But now, thanks to Christ and thanks to being sons of God, we inherit. This is why son language is so important 
Paul's not being sexist. Those who could not inherit, such as the daughters and all the other sons, God elevates to the status of eldest son. It is not to do with masculinity. Indeed, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. It's to do with my status as an inheritor, as chief inheritor, as the one who gets everything. But before we look at that inheritance, how does this all happen? How can we be called sons and heirs? Galatians 4, 4 4-5. Read this with me as I commentate through it. Because when the fullness of time came, that is when God in his redemptive historical plan that we were looking at last week decided that it was enough. He decided that the discipline and pointing and guarding and guiding of the law was over. When he decided that the Jews had waited long enough and the Gentiles had waited long enough, in the fullness of his perfect timing, God sent forth his son. Son with a capital S. The son. The promise. The offspring. To be born of woman and born under the law. Born of woman in order that God in Christ may identify with man in suffering fully as a real, living, breathing human being by becoming Emmanuel, God with us. Born under law to show that he is also perfect, being under the law as we are, and yet being able to fully keep the law as it was meant to be kept. All done in order that he might redeem, that is, buy us back from the law because of his perfectness and his righteousness and his godness to buy those of us who are under the law back in order that we might receive adoption as sons. So much has happened for us to get to this place. A transaction has occurred whereby my curse, verse 10 of chapter 3, is placed on Christ. And he dies the curse death on the cross for me, verse 13. And now I'm clothed in him with his righteousness, verse 27, so that I can now be called a son of God, verse 26, for what purpose? So that I can now receive the Spirit in order for me to cry, Abba, Father. That's all we inherit. The Spirit that enables us to cry, Abba, Father. We inherit the privilege of being able to cry, Abba, Father. The privilege of being able to stand before the throne room of God himself with Christ, clothed in his righteousness, stood in his perfection, drenched in his blood, covered by his grace, and look into the eyes of my judge and say, Father, Abba Father, dearest Father, my dad, I receive the Spirit of Christ himself, verse 6. The Spirit that Jesus told his disciples he would send them, which enables this lifeless, dead, law-breaking, wretched body that was imprisoned under the law, recalcitrant in the face of it, and enticed by the elementary principles of this world to cry, Father. Isn't that incredible? That's what I inherit. This is glorious news. This is unbelievable news. All the more so knowing that I could do nothing to gain this status as eldest sons. You see, the Judaizers thought they had it. Through lineage and entitlement, circumcision and law, they thought they could be called sons because they'd earned it. 
They thought they were worthy of God. They thought they could show their worth by keeping the law. That's not how it works, cries Paul. It is not Jewishness or maleness or worth or merit that secures me for heaven and makes me a son. It is because of the adoption of my God, my Father, and because of faith in Christ. Indeed, it is not because of my honor that I get to be called a son. It's because of Christ's honor. It's not because of my worth that I'm able to be called a son. It's because of Christ's worth. And for those of us who are Christians, what kind of God are we believing in? A God who's pleased with us when we've sinned a little bit less than yesterday? And a God who's upset with us and knocking us back because we sinned a little bit more than yesterday? Or a God who says, son, I love you, regardless. For those of us who are constantly trying to keep the law for salvation, who inadvertently assume privilege and my outward appearance as being impressive before God and before other people, for those of us who enjoy being called safe by others in the church, for those of us who lean too much on our own Christian heritage, for those of us who end up leading that Jenga-like spiritual experience, we are brought back to the knowledge that we have done nothing to ingratiate ourselves to God. I've got nothing. I bring nothing. I have done nothing. I was born into nothing. But I am adopted into his sonship by Christ's actions and by his grace alone. It is not on my honor that I can be called a son. It's on his, as a father of promise. Son, I love you. I did this for you. Trust me. Don't rely on yourself. You'll be a fractured mess. Trust me. And for those of us who are hurting tonight so, so much, for those of us who are so struggling in sin and are in the depths of despair, where we really feel our worthlessness and almost can't face the thought of having to face God, God says, Son, I love you. Don't you think I know? Don't you think I know what you're like? What you're going through? What you're battling with? What your private demons are? What your secret hurts are? What your profound sins are? What your fears and your failures are? What your sleepless nights look like? What your Monday mornings feel like? What your workplace does to you? What your home life seems to you? I know. I still love you. You are so safe in my arms because you are my son. There is nothing you can do to change that. You are my inheritor. There is nothing you can do to change that. I made you someone of worth. There is nothing you can do to change that. I made you someone who stands next to Jesus himself as a brother and is accepted into this family. Son, I did this for you. Oh, Abba, Father. Why, oh, why then, do we insist on being under the law? 
That's Paul's whole point in this epistle. O Galatians, O Chalmers, why do we keep fleeing to the imprisonment and the disciplinarianism of the law when we are already in the arms of our Father God? You may be sitting here tonight and maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking, how can this be possible? It might be that you do recognize your sin, that you're burdened by trying to keep these impossible laws for a religion. Maybe you're feeling like you're worth nothing and are too far gone for this God. How can you possibly know him? Well, the truth is you can come to this God exactly as you are and say, please accept me as your son and save me from lawlessness because I'm lost. And here's the thing. He cannot turn you away. He can't do it. He would be denying himself. By his honor and by his act as a father who wishes to adopt, he cannot cast you out. He's nailed himself to that pledge. You are not too lost. You are not too weak. You are not too desperate. You are not too sinful for God to make you righteous before his throne through the blood of Christ as you choose to fully put your trust in him. And look what you inherit. The first thing we inherit is the spirit that enables us to call God Father. And because of that, we are therefore also given the same status that Jesus has before the throne of God. He is now our brother. We are not Jesus in any way, but we are given his title. As a son and heir of the Father God, I am a co-inheritor with him. That means I get everything Christ gets. I receive all the spiritual blessings in Christ, Ephesians 1. A perpetual help and guide in the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Now residing in me, maintaining my faith, leading my life, counselling me in my darkest moments. I receive a new global family where I am placed in a community of believers, of brothers and sisters, diverse and yet unified, united, which encourages me, convicts me, builds me up and sends me out. I receive a new purpose, something worth living for, something to aim for, telling other people about this incredible gospel of grace, finding that my life really does mean something, finding that I do not need to be perfect, and I find that I have real relationships and real friendships. And I receive a new life, not just a life free from the law, lived out now as glorious as that is in Christ, but a life for eternity, with the nail-marked Christ himself in the center of the throne, where peace and justice reign, and where I am fully, truly, finally free, where I am fully, truly, finally in perfect harmony with my brothers and sisters in Christ. You are no longer a slave, verse 7, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christian, this is your status, but it can be hard, especially if you've had a tragic example of fatherhood in your life. But God is the perfect father, the father that you never had, the father who gives you so much more than you can possibly imagine, the father who gave his own son for you, the father who sent the spirit of God into you so that you could be made new, the father that brought you back, redeemed you from your curse, so that you could know what real fatherhood looks like. 
As convicts on death row, we are adopted out of the prison of the law and into the freedom of God. As ill-kept orphans, we are adopted out of the orphanage of the law and into the sonship of God. As worthless wretches, we are adopted out of the poverty of the law and into the inheritance of the immeasurable wealth of God. Don't go back. We are children with an incredible future. Under the law and under trying to keep it, we could not be further from God. Under grace, under adoption, we could not be any closer. Live like that is true. With prayers that are marked with an understanding of our dependence on God, not out of legalistic intent. Lives that are lived by honesty and vulnerability, not under panic and pride. Sin that should not surprise us, sin that we are not content with, and sin that does not fatally condemn. Our mornings should be marked by restating our trust in him. Our evenings should be marked by admitting our sorrow and accepting his grace. Our church should be marked by the way we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, seeing each other as people for whom Christ died, carrying each other daily to his cross, and into the arms of our mighty, powerful, loving, jealous, heavenly Father. And our days should be walked, and can be walked, moment by moment, hardship by hardship, joy by joy, hand in hand, with our loving heavenly Father, who says to you every single moment of every single day, very simply, the words, I love you. I love you, and that is it. You're now safe. Don't go back to being under the law. Enjoy Christ and enjoy being a son and an inheritor of our Father God. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much for this glorious truth. Lord, it is almost unbelievable to think uh, where we've come from in this book to see that we are now sons of God. We inherit everything that Christ has. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us a real future with real purpose. Help us to enjoy living that out. Help us to enjoy loving each other in our community together. Help us to enjoy bringing each other to the foot of the cross where we cling to it because we are not worth anything, but you have made us worthy because of your righteousness placed on us, because of your son's death for us. Lord, we praise you so much for this. Lord, may this really affect how we live. May we not be people who are panicked and frightened and trying to keep the law and wanting to show our worth. May we know every single day that we are loved, that everything has been done for us, and that we are now allowed to wander into the arms of our Abba Father, and we are given real life and real freedom in him. We praise you, Heavenly Father God, for this wonderful truth. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.